Hi, hello, bonjour, and namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I'm your host, Anne Mulatala. Hi, hello, I'm glad to be back. I've had a little bit of a hiatus, an unplanned hiatus, and you may hear it in my voice. Unfortunately, I was hit <laughs> with, a, with a very lengthy chest infection, doubling with a sinus infection. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's had the pleasure, <laughs> especially if you're like me and you live in the Northern Hemisphere. But anyway, enough about me. I hope that you can bear with uh, my super sultry tone today. But I want to introduce the wonderful Scott Wimsett. So Scott started his agency, Bespoke Banter, in 2006. And he had a very clear and very unique vision that he wanted to invest in film to support brands, create content and assets for the emerging social networks or social media now. Scott built a very solid reputation early on for being a trusted partner for both brands and many world-renowned talents, which you're going to hear all about. More recently, Scott also launched the Feel Good Fellowship with his friend, the model and climate activist, Arizona Muse. So in our conversation, Scott tells me how he started from stage acting and dancing and performing before going into modeling and PR, and of course, creating his agency. He shares his thoughts with me about how a brand's media channels can be a documentary channels when the story is told with authenticity and transparency. And of course, we talk sustainability, though we know that's a big word, before discussing mindfulness rituals and much, much more. So without further ado, I give you my conversation with Scott Wimsett. Enjoy. All right. So are you ready? Yep. Let's do it. Wonderful. Scott, I'm so happy to see you. Welcome to Out of the Clouds. Oh, thank you. And so lovely to be here. Thank you for asking me. It's my pleasure. So first, uh, let me ask you, where am I finding you today? I am in Mayfair. I'm in the flat and I've just been in town for a couple of things, a couple of events last night. And after this lovely chat with you, then I'm running back to Somerset where I spend a lot of my time mm. um, to collect my son from school. That sounds like a really lovely plan for a Friday <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a busy week. So, you know, that way I kind of tend to like to finish slightly earlier on a Friday just to have that kind of embrace the weekend and just really mm. make the most of that time so that then you kind of recharge for the Monday or following. So, as you know, I love to start my interviews by asking my guests to tell their story very freely and, and pick up wherever they fancy, because I like to get to know people before starting to talk about Mm -hmm. what we do. So, Scott, would you please tell me your story? <laughs> My story, I mean, gosh, it's a quite interesting, like unexpected route into, you know, the fashion and beauty industry that I'm in now. I grew up with uh, a very colourful, eccentric British family, most of them antique dealers. There was a sort of clean divide down the middle of like eccentric antique dealers and then Navy. Oh. So they're kind of a funny old combination. My father was a, a, a director of Marines and he was in the Navy and my mother worked in the charity sector. So they were really different people. But the one sort of common ground they did have was family and very, very social so the house was always full of people and everybody from every family member would come to us. So I think growing up, you kind of had to really get your voice heard at the table, literally, you know, and so that kind of way of being able to communicate and have those sort of social skills, I definitely feel they're part of the kind of building blocks that took me into the career that I've ended up in. Yeah, there was just an appetite for celebration and fun. I mean, I kind of just... Just all I seem to remember is there was always a sort of jazz band tuning up in the garden or everybody was dressing up for some sort of 
long, long dinner party that would sort of sit at, say, three o'clock in the afternoon and they would still be at the table at sort of 10 o'clock at night, you know, and then dance to the stones in my father's study. And so, yeah, they were just big party people. So that kind of also had an impact on my kind of appetite for marrying work with life and celebration and oh, stuff. Yeah. And so I've always kind of married those two together. But I, yeah, I mean, my parents still find it slightly odd that I've still, I, you know, that I've got a business because that I was such a creative. I was at dance school and I was performing and I was at drama school and I wasn't really expected that I would end up having my own business and being that kind of family member that would be kind of building a team and, and doing some sort of stepping into like more corporate territory as well. So but yeah, I kind of did the whole school thing. I did the university thing. I uh, went to school at the tail end in Cambridge. And then I went to university in London and studied drama. Then I went to live in Hong Kong and modeled for a couple of years. And quite a lot of my family were in Hong Kong. And that was a big pull and a big sort of launching into like independence, I guess. And then when the modeling stuff was sort of, you know, coming to an end in Hong Kong, I did come back to London and then started working in PR. And I had a few girlfriends who were working in PR and they kind of like, oh, this is quite fun. Let's bring you in. It was all what I enjoyed was the creativity of working within fashion and beauty and different brands that I worked for over a space of like five years. But I was useless looking after other people's sort of budgets and money and all of that kind of stuff. So it was much more about the kind of theatre, like the theatre of like PR that I enjoyed, all the events and the sort of press and the kind of TV and the kind of interviews. And I just, I, I definitely gravitated towards that. And then I'm trying to be succinct a bit with this because I'm just trying to sort of whistle stop through my life a bit. But <laughs> It's okay. Uh, we've got time. We've got time. <laughs> then there was this sort of eureka moment, really. I went to Los Angeles and met my now husband. And I remember sort of saying to him, I've got this idea. I want to create film for brands. This is before content was doing its thing 20 years ago there was no such thing as that like you had a website and that was a bit exotic and out there, you know, and you definitely, know, would... I mean, if people had a website, they were like, wow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then this sort of maybe use of photography on your site and that kind of stuff, but moving image and then social media. I mean, it was just the formation of it, but I was presenting at the time doing a really hilarious uh, late night gambling channel because I really needed the cash. And I was working between PR and then also was really desperate to do this sort of presenting stuff. And I remember getting this gig and it was quite well paid, but it was, you know, late night TV. And a lot of my sort of party friends would come home from clubs. And this is like 20 years ago. And they'd be like, why are you on TV at like three in the morning in a bow tie talking about Monte Carlo roulette? And I was like, well, that's what I'm doing on the quiet. And the guy who was running the whole kind of show format one night when we were, we were recording it, he was like, do you really want to be doing this? And I was like, I've got this idea. Like I've got quite a lot of inroads in fashion and beauty. I used to work in PR in that. Like I just think I, I need the infrastructure and all the filming and stuff, but I, I want to go to these different brands and see if they would be interested in the idea around creating assets for them. And he, and he was like, sure, well, I'll support you. So he supported me for a whole year. And I just thrashed around every single PR company, every contact I had, like Vogue or, you know, any kind of title that we're exploring online territory, any kind of shop opening, any kind of celebrity endorsement stuff. And it was just like this. And they didn't really know. They were like, well, what would we do with this content? What, where would we put it? And I was like, well, why don't I try and sort of syndicate it for you? So if we get an exclusive interview, then I'd go to Reuters or I'd go to... Blah, blah, blah. So that's kind of how it all started. That actually very quickly in London, there was this sort of appetite for a kind of not one size fits all, that we got a reputation from a PR perspective that we were going to brands and sort of saying, well, if you're a Rimmel, then you're sort of digital narrative is going to be very different from uh, Yves Saint or, you know, a different type of brand. So we were looking at working with really good filmmakers, which again was very different to early sort of start of, of the content territory. It was much more kind of run and gun stuff. And Fashion Week, I suppose, was our first real mark in the in the sand to say that we were here. We started to work a lot with the British Fashion Council and a lot of their sponsors. So Mercedes-Benz and Maybelline and L'Oreal. They really enabled us to build a team, really. Um, so yeah. 
that was that was the sort of start of my company, and that's twenty years ago. That's amazing. Picking up a lot of what you said, and I am grateful that you shared where you grew up and the environment near you, because I was trying to understand what brought you to that desire to present. And now I understand that you are doing drama school and that's what you were studying. You were keen to, let's say, get on stage or get in front of the camera. How early did you have that desire? Very early. I mean, to be honest, I still it's still a massive part of what I put into the business. I think business anyway is a massive part of performing in lots of ways. And not that it needs to be kind of fake or not true to you. It's just about how uh, connect. I don't know. I mean, I kind of, I like an audience. I love a boardroom sort of, I, I'm thrilled if I've got a whole load of people around, it's like, you know, it's an ego thing. I think, you know, you've just got an audience and you're presenting creative. So yeah, but as a really smally, you know, doing like performances in my parents' drawing room at Christmas, any given day of the week, if they were partying with friends and I would sort of come out in a tutu and do some kind of little number, or I went to dance school from the age of eight. I was at doing local performances. I hilariously grew up in a seaside town called Broadstairs where Charles Dickens lived. And so oh. every year they would do these sort of big Charles Dickens festivals and they would run these plays. And I was always in every single sort of theatre performance of Dickens plays when I was younger. So yeah, it started at a really young age and then obviously drama school and all the rest of it. So yeah, they, I think when I was training as an actor and when I was running around town doing castings, you know, it's a terrifying territory to try and sort of make a living out of it and it is very much based on luck as we know and I'd get a gig and then you'd get nothing for three months and so living in London it wasn't very sustainable and so that's why I went into the presenting because I was like I can I felt like with an agent I can get a bit more work and then when Bespoke Banter started it was about marrying all of those worlds together somehow so Mm, yeah that's fascinating so you had this sort of performance background Mm -hmm. You'd been in Hong Kong as a model, you worked in PR, and you became interested in film. I'd love to, so first of all, it's wonderful to see the holistic vision that you had around how to tell stories, I'm guessing. But I'm also wondering, where did this desire come from for you? I feel your vision and I'm awed by the fact that you had that sense, that film and, and content was something that you could and wanted to develop for brands where was the spark? Mm-hmm. It's a really good question because I don't entirely know the answer. Like there's been a few incidents where I've just felt aligned very much to that digital kind of content world where I felt many, many factors would sort of contribute towards my decision to be quite, see really clearly what was coming next. And that's not a kind of big ego thing. It's just an extraordinary gift in the way of like, I don't quite know what other components are making that happen. And there's a reason probably why the business is still here. I think it's definitely the realization that this was going to explode in regards to brands needing to have this volume of content. And I remember speaking about it with Freddie, my husband, and saying, I I really think this is where I need to align all of my focus. And it was, you know, it's a combination of things. I mean, I, you know, I'd worked in PR for a long time. It all started to feel very dry and predictable and, you know, kind of editorial content, you know, kind of uh, publication sort of led. And it just felt that like the appetite to click through to something more, to get more of a reward on your interaction with that brand or that talent or whatever, you you needed more to reward yourself. So obviously, we now know that the kind of retention and engagement from a you know a click play audience is like ninety percent more than from a still image. So it's it's so powerful. And we were the first agency in London to actually create bespoke content for fashion and beauty brands. And now there are many, 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 but. We were very lucky right at the beginning that the lovely Kate Moss was a still, you know, historically at the one of the world's most famous supermodels and a stills model. And Kate was very used to doing that and obviously was globally renowned and acclaimed for doing just stills. And then as brands started to ask that 
perhaps we could put some moving image into the campaigns and maybe even potentially, dare I say, do an interview and all of this stuff. So we were introduced right at the early days of Bespoke to do a Longchamp campaign. And anyway, she turned up and the car had gone around Bond Street about five times because there were so many kind of paparazzi outside. Literally, she was sort of brought in under this immense security and uh, and I was sort of thrown at her as the kind of, well, try and get the interview now. And I was like, hi. And we just, I don't know, like we had this like really lovely 10 minute conversation and we really got on and made each other laugh. And she came across as really fabulous and natural and just amazing as she is. And that content did really well for Longchamp because it was Kate really at ease and not having this sort of, press release kind of answer. She just was just Kate speaking about how much she loved the brand. And that then made her see the reaction to it. And then she brought us in on every single campaign she did afterwards, which was a big kickstart for us because then all the other talent and be it kind of Karl Lagerfeld and you know, David Beckham and Cara Delevingne and Coria Schiffer, and they all started to use us, Charlotte Tilbury. So that kind of territory then really, really took off and it was working a lot with ambassadors and the brands they were sort of collaborating with. Ah, uh, That's fascinating. The place of ambassadors within the brand messaging is something that I believe some of our listeners may not be very familiar with. Mm-hmm. Would you speak to what you think is important about finding the right voice and the right mm-hmm. person for the brand as an ambassador? I mean, look, that territory's changed a lot, hasn't it, in the last sort of five years? And <laughs> what would have been a kind of successful formula of actually aligning a talent who has that kind of global interest with the aspirational professional beauty brand was fairly straightforward territories, whether they would be a model and then again, of course, like actors started to sort of really wrestle in and muscle in on that territory of endorsement of products because they started to realize just how much money you can make. So that did its thing. But I, I think now, gosh, it's much more rather than just sort of prestige and profile, it's much more about principles and values and it's more complex and it needs to be. I think we as citizens have changed in regards to what we're prepared to buy into and feel is authentic. And I'm not saying the talent that I mentioned there were not authentic and they were very much supportive of the brands that they collaborated with. I just think that whole celebrity word is, is very much a kind of sailing ship slightly away into the distance. Yeah, that's not a bad thing, I think. No, I agree. I heard you a little bit earlier talk about how you were saying to your husband that you felt like brands needed something more. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember what other word you used, but I'm going to tie this into something I found on your website that really Mm -hmm. resonated with me. I heard you say about brands that, quote, your content channels are the documentary of a brand's channel. Mm-hmm. And I love that sentence. It made mm-hmm. me really happy. <laughs> but what clicked for me when I heard it is that this is what I understand content to be. Mm-hmm. But I think that for many luxury brands or very big brands, they see their media channels, their own media channels, their Instagram, their TikToks as a place to promote and a different kind of advertising it's still very glossy, let's say, for the large mm-hmm. part. Sort of away mm-hmm. from that telling more story, mm-hmm. away from the documentary and still very much in the, we're just trying to sell you things. Just mm-hmm. please click and like and, and go mm-hmm. to the website. Mm-hmm. So how do you, as an established agency, do you help the brands that approach you navigate this, uh, the difference between that sort of old advertising model on these new channels and the voice that I think, as you said, us citizens want to hear, right? Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. something more. How do you help them navigate that? (laughs) I mean, some are more open and others are more resistant. I think part of what Bespoke was doing was really two things. It It was ultimately enabling a real conversation to take place. So we would quite often absorb and pre-production a lot of the scripts and a lot of the key kind of messaging that they would look for, but then kind of slightly throw it out the window and allow a real interview to happen. 
if I was with a big talent and I would often be sent in with they might if they were, I don't know I'm thinking Karl Lagerfeld or something he didn't want to do like five interviews with Vogue and different sort of consumer titles and stuff I would go in with all the questions for all of it and just do all of it for him so there was that but there was at the end of the day it was very much still about selling product it, it was about ultimately at the end of the day you watch that asset and then you feel like you're driven to them click buy, drop it into your basket and, you know, et cetera. So that's why we started to produce content within our new umbrella of Bespoke, which is our kind of charity arm, which is Feel Good Fellowship, which is a community interest. And that's because I felt that the, again, this citizen just needed a little bit more access. They need to have this documentary type of content. So as opposed to what we were renowned for, which was, I believe was still very kind of powerful in the way of like championing real people in real interviews. It still was often with a whole load of like glam team and studios with lots of lighting and big sort of shoot location houses and everyone styled within an inch of their life. Whereas the Fieldwood Fellowship stuff would be much more about kind of having the access to the inner workings of the business where you would actually remove that fourth wall and be able to sit at the leadership table and go through all levels of the business and sort of celebrate the unsung heroes and sort of work out what their purpose is, their targets, their DNA, their philosophy, and why you care. We're using our money as our vote now. So that's the strongest marketing tool, which is the way that I speak to a lot of clients is to try to convince them that vulnerability now in our modern world with all of the things we have to do is actually your most powerful marketing. So that's why I talk to them about the need for feeling a little bit more vulnerable and undressed and rather than everything being so carefully curated. So many meetings we'd have, we'd never say that. We'd never share that. And I'd be like, well, the clock's ticking here and there's a new age consumer who's coming in and they've got zero tolerance if you can't tell the full story. It's just TikTok time for me. So that's why we really promote this documentary content alongside the other stuff, which obviously is selling a product, but I think they can both exist together. Mm, that's so interesting you should say that. I was fascinated when I first read about that Feel Good Foundation. So talk me through... How did this happen? How did you make the decision to build a separate arm of your company? Well, I mean, like like everything, there's sort of motivation based on good business sense. Because <laughs> I think you can realize you've got one product that's working, but that people know it for one thing. And so trying to sort of carve it up into something confusing people, it was about kind of starting something which had a very different purpose and narrative and type of content offering. The other side is what I really cared about. I think we've all been guilty of being caught up in fashion and beauty, which are two industries I work in a lot, where it's awfully good fun for many years in the way of like just, I guess, the excess. I'd be traveling all over the world and we'd be having all these incredible shoots and there were quite a lot of zeros on lots of checks just to make these kind of assets sort of sing. And then you start to realize when we were at our sort of height, and it's not quite the same now, which I'll go into later, because there's now many, many agencies doing what we're doing. But at the time when we were growing, we were that only one for a long time in London on that scale. You start to realize that actually you're a little bit part of the problem, that you're actually the assets you're creating are ultimately making people buy more stuff. And images that are often not obtainable and then you think from a mental health perspective just is that actually really something you want to be a part of so yeah it's just again listening carefully to what is coming next and that's why Feel Good Fellowship was the right move at that time to start to go to brands and encourage them to tell the truth but that wasn't wasn't easy (laughs) a lot of them weren't ready to tell the truth yeah I do not doubt that Indulge me for a second. I wanted to hear from you. What is the tie-in with mental health? Because I saw that being quite prominent on the homepage of the Feel Good Foundation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's all married together, isn't it? I mean, there's like a tsunami of mental health issues. If we look at the performance and the ability to really contribute to your career, to your life, to your community, to your family, is the most important thing to have that sense of being in the sort of driving seat 
of your mental health. Everything has been over the last 10 years, it moves so much faster and it's overwhelming. And social media is is dangerous. It's like everything. I really firmly believe in 10 years' time that it will look incredibly different and there will be an a lot of research around how bad as there already is, but like just in regards to the actual sort of habitual practice that we use these different platforms for, I think there would be a lot of like, like smoking cigarettes. This is dangerous. You know, I think it will come in good time around just how much screen time people have and what platforms they are going into and just how careful they have to be. So it's all connected. I really believe that it's been tough out there for many people, and myself included. It's really, really important to ensure that you're living this balanced life, be it kind of a reward in the sense of purpose with what you do in your job or being able to have the life work balance or doing the mindfulness, doing the meditation, all of those cliche things, but they do really, really work or the sport, all of that stuff. So, and at the end of the day, just being happy that you can wake up of a day and feel like I've got this and I believe in myself and I've got a, a sort of a connection to my purpose and what my offering is and, and why I'm here. And and hopefully working towards leaving a bit of a legacy because life is short and you want to make it a good one. Yeah, that sounds... <laughs> I hear you. I think you put the nail on the head when you said that things have accelerated so much in the last 10 years. And I think mm-hmm. it's that acceleration that no one was ready for or in control of that sort of precipitated us in lots of dangerous territories. And I, I grappled with some of that myself and I was mm-hmm. near burnout for, for quite a while. So I, I understand that it's, it's tough out there for many of us. And indeed it's really worth exploring anything that individually we feel pulled towards because not everything works for everybody. So we each mm-hmm. have to find our own mix, mm-hmm. our balance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you do? I did yoga for a long time. So I think that I, I was primed with, with yoga and that one day I, went, I came to meditation. But having practiced yoga for 15 years, I think is the reason I then went in and became a daily meditator, which then had a, a very strong ripple effect. And it was impossible not to notice the changes in myself. And mm-hmm. from there my friends started to ask me, Oh, what are you doing? And I was sharing resources and one thing led to another. And that's how I ended up becoming a meditation teacher. When did you first become aware that this was something that you needed to work on? I think I've always known that I, yeah, I needed to really make sure that I was, you know, incorporating at the very least exercise just had that quick kind of fix. Like we all, it's like the kind of quick kind of SOS kind of, how do I just make myself feel better? It's I, I swim or I run because I'm always so busy that I can't really commit to things that involve other people. And unfortunately like tennis or things like that, I just would love to do that, but I just, I don't have that kind of diary, unfortunately. So yeah, for the last sort of 25 years, most of my friends know me as like this, most before I'd go to any event, I would have been for a run before I do any filming, I would have been for a swim. It's just, I have to do it. It's like a, a drug. So, so I've known that for a long time, but I think more recently it goes obviously into the meditation and mindfulness manifestation. All of the deeper connections to self. And I was sent away by a girlfriend of mine uh, to a silent retreat they had them all over the world in like Bali in the south of France and then Wales in the Brecon Beacons, which is the one I went to. <laughs> um, okay. It, it was amazing. And you literally, you had to hand in your phones and there was no, obviously no alcohol, no caffeine. There was a, a vegan retreat and you're not supposed to do eye contact. And just, it was full on. And it was one of the most unbelievable experiences of my life where I actually by daily practice and and yoga learned how to really meditate and I got a high from that in such a 
a, a deeply sophisticated, elegant way that I couldn't ever walk away and leave that. You know, it was it was just the most unbelievable, euphoric connection that I just had to carry that on. And so that was many years ago, and I do use it daily. And that has definitely helped in, in every part of work. And, and again, it becomes just part of you, doesn't it? It's not like a quick add-on. It's not like it's painted on. It's not like you're making yourself do it. It's just how you live your life. A hundred percent. And I think that it's a tool. It's a tool that we can all use whenever we need it. Mm-hmm. It's funny because now I notice that if a flight's cancelled or there's a major queue, I'm never fretting. Mm-hmm. I can always come back. I can always, you know, pay attention to my breath. It's always mm-hmm. a moment of a, a parenthesis. It's almost like I can just pull that and go, oh, great. There's a problem. Here's what I've got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, and it, access it. Exactly. It's funny. It switches my point of view around a situation almost instantaneously. Mm-hmm. So I'm very interested in in hearing from you. What does sustainability have to do with that aspect of telling the full story in your eyes, either at Bespoke Banter or with the Feel Good Foundation? The whole area of sustainability, I even struggle with the word a bit, just as we all do now, because it just doesn't really mean anything and it's so overused and there's no regulation around it. And it all honesty, I was having career fatigue about five years ago. I was very overwhelmed with contributing, as I said, to that volume of content, making people buy more product, but at the same time, deeply concerned like a lot of us about what was actually happening to the planet and fashion being after gas and oil, the second biggest polluter to our planet. And this sort of understanding when you look at the statistics that we're starting to speed up we're buying more but we're wearing it less and we wear things on average like five or six times and then it goes to landfill and is all of this sort of like what on earth is happening is this is all about money (laughs) of course and it's all about just for now rather than investing in the future And so it just always felt like this is a dirty transaction. And that's why the kind of trying to wrestle with sustainability in the way of like all these panel talk, we were still running a business, we had salaries to pay. So we were still doing content. I mean, we were like churning out a smoky eye tutorial from L'Oreal, like nobody's business. I mean, there were just like tons and tons of content every week. But then at the same time, I did a series with Annabelle's, like a talk series, you know, how ethical is your brand and had like Bay Garnet for Moxfam and Vogue and um, Dolly Jones and Sam Roddick. And I had like amazing people on the panel just to sort of navigate that whole conversation, I guess. And we invited in all of our sort of most senior big wig decision makers that we knew within fashion and beauty. And obviously Annabelle's hosted us and, you know, we would do these regularly. We did a a talk series and I did maybe six in a year just to try to work out what we could all collectively focus on and talk about. And, And like everything that's new or anything in life that you don't understand or know, you have to get closer to it and sort of chew the fat and navigate and share thoughts and get cross and find solutions. It's a journey, isn't it? So that was a really good help for me to sort of hone in on why it felt I could still run a business, have a business that created content that made people think more provocative rather than selling product. We were selling principles. So it's still interesting though, because as you like, I'm sure you know, like once you get closer to the sustainability space, you do start to very quickly find your tribe. Like there are people that are just for whatever happened, it's a very interesting time. Like any big movement as it starts to do its thing and you put your head above the parapet and sort of say, I've got an opinion about this. People do start to find you. And that's been reflective in the kind of clients that we've been getting. And definitely brands that are born clean have been coming to us. And so they really want to have that very detailed storytelling to communicate that DNA to their their following. And then weirdly, interestingly, most recently is a lot of the charity sector within fashion, which I'm a massive fan of. So yeah, it's testament and and reassuring to know that if you do kind of have the passion and you put it out there, then you do find like-minded souls and you can still run a business. 
Yeah, of course. Yeah. Do you know what that's making me think of? If you communicate your why, if you share what you're passionate about, then you're going to find the people who believe what you believe. Mm-hmm. It's all about recognizing each other, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really exciting. I'm really happy to hear that for you. I do recognize as well that within the fashion and luxury industry, which I'm still a part of as I support several corporate businesses as a consultant, it's much harder for established brands to change because human beings don't like change, <laughs> first of all. Changing processes seems to throw us in, in this sort of a world of misery. And it's much easier to start new with brand new eyes and to, to challenge the status quo. But I did see a number of wonderful designers and small brands who actually, with all of the principles and their head in the right place, And everything sorted, let's say, as they started their business, got caught in the machine. And so while they were sustainable from a product perspective, it's the mental health that took a toll. And from feeding the Instagram machine that you describe with the content to feeding the fashion cycle, which is expected when you do wholesale fashion, you know, there are some big difficulties. We need to break the system a little bit further than what we've done so far is, is mm-hmm. what I'm thinking at the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I was with a journalist last night and she was sort of saying, how are you feeling about everything? And I said, well, I feel hopeful actually. And I just come mm. from a sort of charity event. And so, and she was like, do you, she said, I just feel on the tail end of fashion week. It's just all the same. Like it's just, we're back to where we were. And if anything, we're just ignoring the kind of news around us. And it's just carrying on as normal and I was like oh gosh that's sort of depressing because I feel a little bit like especially we do quite a lot of castings and we have a lot of brands that might like the voice of the younger Gen Z participant and that to me makes me leave feeling really pumped and optimistic in the way that they have a zero tolerance and they will not buy from brands that as we said you know that are are struggling to show their full story it's inevitably with everything that's happening it is moving in the right direction but then i speak to my climate expert pals and they're like well what it's really going to take is a major major catastrophe and that will be the only wake-up call that will make people kind of realize that this system we currently have is Mm. not fit for purpose and it's and it's our demise if we don't address it Mm. yay (laughs) I don't disagree with them. (laughs) It's a deep injustice, actually, that the young are having to tackle so many gigantic topics at a young age that we had the luxury not to do, Mm -hmm. which we were, I was growing up in hedonistic sort of 90s and was having a very nice time. Last (laughs) thing I was thinking about was like, what does the prime minister's sort of latest offering kind of mean to our existence? Etc. 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 Of course, there were things happening, but mainly, I think I'm talking about from a climate perspective. Mm. We have to help them, and, and again, that mental health stuff kicks in. You know, we really have to help the young because they have got a lot to do. And, and as we say, there is a tsunami of mental health, and, and they quite rightly are feeling very overwhelmed. Um, so, in any way we can, every brand needs to support that and nurture and feed that spirit and that sense of getting things done by the young. I 100% agree with you. I've heard some really interesting scientific studies that explain why it's so hard for us to connect to the future. So why, let's say, so many adults are making the wrong decision because we don't think long-term. And it seems to be from... The, the academic research that I read that human beings have as much of a sense of a connection to their future self as they do to a stranger that they pass on the street. So with that sort of disconnection with who we are going to be, you can understand that we only ever seem to be making decisions that are going to affect our very near future, right? What's going mm-hmm. to affect this year or next year and never really study or consider the consequences of our actions today. And I think that's why it's really interesting to do work around meditation, mental health, therapy, and go into coaching and all modalities that 
could interest someone to try and work with that future self, to try Mm. and get that sense of connection, because otherwise I don't think we'll be able to make the changes that need to be made in order to reach, let's say, a better or Mm -hmm. safer 2050 or beyond. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I know it's the time thing, isn't it? Because this is make or break decade. I mean, as we used to think it was sort of 2050, it's now 2030, if you listen to any of those kind of people who really know what they're talking about. And I think when we were sort of doing a lot of our panel discussions around Feel Good Fellowship, we were definitely accessing people who, you know, for example, there was a a French lawyer who works directly with the White House on climate issues called Maxime Bougrand. And we worked quite closely with that caliber of person who could actually really share accurate information of what was actually happening so that we could really empower brands in their decisions rather than it just being a nice sort of fashion and beauty chit chat. I sort of felt that at this point we need to really bring in the sort of big players and the people who have got all of those creds in that space who can really offer some clarity and some take home and some call to action. She's often in despair like it wakes up sometimes in a bit of a cold sweat because she was like, I, I just know so much information that it is terrifying. And then at the same time, she says, you do see immense progress. Like she is actually sort of being able to take brands to task and starting to see results. It's a collective mindset, isn't it? And to me, you all just have to do the very best that we all can. You know, because otherwise, an overwhelming sense of panic is literally will floor us all. We never get off the starting block. So, I again with my work, like tiny little Scott in my offering in in the entity that I am, would be kind of thinking about okay, well, if I'm reporting on this, can we talk more about sustainable fashion rather than just the kind of people who are the advertisers or the sponsors or definitely from a kind of upcycling, repurpose, sort of vintage pre-loved territory, it's definitely got its place in high-end fashion and in regards to its provenance and sense of creativity and storytelling and that expression in a very sort of whimsical, playful way. And it's exciting. I just feel there is such a new line in the sand And fashion has always been this incredible barometer of what actually is happening in the world. And no more than now, it's a way of actually abandoning trends. And I mean, I haven't been to a fashion show for two seasons. And that is very extraordinary because I would be at so many in all different capitals and be just mopping it up and filming there. I don't go to any anymore. So, yeah, it feels like there's a real change in my mind. Mm. Actually, that's a great segue because I was going to tell you, I listened to your interview of Bay Garnet on your podcast, which I really, really loved. So I knew Bay since her early Vogue days and she is such a force to be reckoned with. But I was delighted to discover you as a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> so I encourage everybody to listen to the interview and I'll put it in the show notes as well because Bay is really a very special ambassador for Oxfam and a a wonderful, wonderful stylist. Mm -hmm. So how did you find podcasting after all of your experience presenting and being in front of the camera? Mm, I love it. I, I mean, I'm really enjoying talking to you. I mean, I kind of feel like I'm on the phone to a friend, you know, and we're having a natter. And I think that's what I love about podcasts. I just, because the way in which people listen to them, it's less about kind of, being on camera and being this sort of need to like cover all bases in the way of like how it looks, how it sounds, what everyone's wearing, what, you know, all of how it's edited together, whereas it's just permission for this sort of dropping into a real conversation that's happening in real time. And it just feels really accessible. Our podcast was supported by dear friends at Royal Ascot who were very much about like exploring how to articulate their new age in fashion and wanting to really look at sustainability. And so we had some really super guests. And like you say, Bay is such an ambassador for for pre-loved fashion and has always used those disciplines in any of her editorial kind of styling work. So that was a super, super chat. But there's, you know, we've just been doing the new podcast which is called personal threads and just we had david gandy the other day and stephen jones and it's a real honor and privilege to sit down with people that have had such a detailed story in their career journey and dismantle it but just not make it feel so considered like we're doing now you just vibe off each other so 
yeah, it's a very new medium for me, but I've really, really enjoyed it because I think what happens is that everybody is just a bit more kind of themselves, really, more authentic. Interesting, you should think so. For me, I love long form because I love the idea that we can really get on and just have deeper conversations than we would do if we were having a 10 minute one. Of course, Mm -hmm. we can edit down to 10 minutes, but it, I don't know. I love the long form format. I consume it. I guess that I fell into the trap after listening to thousands and thousands of hours of (laughs) podcasts. I was just going to say, my husband, he's he's a serial podcast uh, listener. I mean, like, mm. whenever I go near him, he's got some podcast playing in his back pocket. I mean, he just walks around with them on and with his phone and he find it extraordinary. So he's like, that's on all the time. I, and he's <laughs> like, yeah, but he's an artist. So he's always painting. So he likes to have some other sort of person with him and a story that he's sort of dropping into. So yeah, I, they keep him company. That's awesome. Yeah. I can see why you would be such a great fit for podcasting because let's say the arc of your career, as I heard you recount it for me, is that you love having conversations. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to tell me, how did you land on the name Bespoke Banter for your company? (laughs) After a good few glasses of Chablis, I seem to remember. Good choice. (laughs) I mean, the word bespoke is very different now to what it was 20 years ago. And I'd been working quite a lot with Savile Row. And I think that 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 word had kind of associated about something being premium and unique and individual and craftsmanship and all of that stuff. So that is a a word that 20 years ago, I really, I felt was really aligned to what I wanted to offer. I never set out to be like a production arm. It was always about being an agency. And I wanted to put together this sort of love of PR and click play and beautiful film and interview and all of that. So that's why bespoke was, you know, the right word in the way of it being totally different for every type of client. It was bespoke to them. And then banter just enabled me to put something less formal alongside bespoke because obviously if we were sort of creating a lot of that content and banter has something sort of chatty and informal and accessible and familiar about it so that it doesn't seem too academic. We're real people and this is fashion and beauty, which at the end of the day, they're really good fun to have a bit of a chat about, but it doesn't have yeah. to be kind of too serious. You can sort of realize that there are different appetites and different audiences, but at the same time, a lot of fashion and beauty comes from inspiration or just sort of storytelling. And so it is about conversation and a Mm. bit of banter. So hence bespoke banter. And I love alliteration. I think it's memorable. And when I, when you're trying to do a new business, I, you know, hence feel good fellowship, bespoke banter. I just like words that kind of alliterate and sort of bounce off each other. Mm. Thank you for sharing that with us. I think you have also a point about that sense of joy, but it's great to have a sense of joy. Mm-hmm. A sense of fun because we can take ourselves so seriously in these industries. Embarrassing you so. I know. I mean, cringe. <laughs> cringe, cringe. So, as you know, the podcast is the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And we talked a little bit about some of the things that work for you and that have helped you, made you stable. But let's say, what is your daily routine? What works for you? Ultimately, I am quite career driven and I'm kind of realized over years I'm at peace when I've actually got a lot of work on, if that makes sense, because I know I have a purpose. I know that there's a a need for what I can share or offer. I know that there's a sort of safety within all of that. So it's a funny old beast, isn't it? Because you just sometimes might think that, you know, you're probably at your most sort of sane when you're away from work and unplugged and lying on a delicious beach somewhere. But it's a combination of things. I I mean, I have a little boy and it's a daily bringing me back to what really matters in the way of my role and my duty to him as a little boy. And so that's another massive part of what sort of centers me and it's a daily yeah, connection to the bigger picture or the bigger sort of 
sense of destiny and, and life. We adopted our little boy from very complex background. And every day I don't sort of underestimate the responsibility and the, the how grateful I am to be his parent. So yeah, that's a big, big, big part of big and purely just we live a lot of the time in Somerset and his school is so far away. I feel like I'm often in the car ferrying him around with a million and one gym kits. And yeah, so it it forces on the fact that it's a big part of my, my sort of daily routine. But of course it's the journaling and the reading and the writing and the meditation and the manifestation and the walks and the sport and that you know it's all of that stuff that is absolutely a daily thing it has to be and I notice as I said earlier like if I'm not doing all of those then being the parent or being the person in the business or being the husband they are fractured and I can't quite perform at the level I'd like to. Oh, I love that word. Sorry, it's, it's, it's quite a powerful word. And I completely resonate with you, fractured. There's a sense of, I feel more fully present mm-hmm. when I do all of the things that you just said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Literally all of them, if I can, on one day. And when I don't, or when I don't sustain my practice, I feel either scattered first, like mm-hmm. I can't bring myself back together. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, fractured. Totally. And the way that you work, I mean, you're going in and helping people. Like if you have, you can't serve from an empty cup, I think, you know, you have to be kind of brimming with a centered self to be able to offer that vision to people. It's so important. And then that stuff becomes contagious. You can feel it. It's palpable, isn't it? They could, they could feed off you. And I think we all know ourselves pretty well after this amount of time in the, in the workplace, like how we know to really deliver or when it's starting to become a little bit too kind of fractious or overwhelming or we know our triggers it's a fool's game to ignore that you know you've got to think about also the sustainability and the length and duration of your career like I don't think I have any interest on many levels to sort of work to a point and then go oh do you know I might retire I mean I'm sort of 48 and I have so many people in their 80s around me who are still working. And that's really inspiring to me. I definitely can't see that I would want to mm. stop at any point. So you do have to look at the long game and yeah. um, keep yourself together. Interesting. Yeah. With the long game, I think that you made me think of energy. Like you have to be very conscious of managing your own energy levels. Mm-hmm. And of course, as a parent, I'm sure that you, this must be a challenge <laughs> very often. I normally go to bed at the same time as my son nowadays. So oh, okay. There you of, go. See, but you, you've understood how to manage your energy. <laughs> exactly. Yes. My father only retired from his medical practice at 75. And the only reason wow. he retired then is because he'd torn his Achilles heel and he had to fix that before continuing to work. And he then went back to university because otherwise he'd be bored. And his ex-wife had joined a a UN, an NGO to support women around the world in in her 80s. So we can always choose to continue to contribute. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Scott, thank you so much for your time. It's already been (laughs) quite a while that I've had you on the line. I would love to ask you, is there anything else that you'd like to share before I go to my closing questions? Anything that we haven't covered? I guess, you know, I mean, I just want to be mindful of the fact that, you know, the fashion and beauty industries are really brilliant spaces as well. I don't want to feel like I'm so down on them because I'm not. They've offered me a career and I definitely have worked very closely with the Fashion Council and the Beauty Council in the way of like what we're what we're aiming to do as an industry. And I, I feel so positive about the change that's happening. We've just finished a series of films with the Beauty Council about encouraging the young to enter the industry. And they're all sorts of areas around sort of cosmetic science or sustainability or just all of the different routes into the industry. Technology being a big one, we worked with Meta on that. And, you know, it's wildly exciting. It's about finding your contribution 
in a really creative way. And like you say, marrying kind of a sense of purpose to creativity, because those industries are a hotbed for that and they are looking at the young. So I'm really, yeah, that was the only thing I'd want to add in the way of like, there are two industries that I feel are in such a significant transition that if I was young and thinking about what to go into in regards to this sort of zero tolerance, but want to see things differently, then I feel there are two industries that are all ears on lots of levels. So you find your right route in and you make yourself heard. And I think on your watch, you could see a real difference and realize, you know, something as flippant as fashion and beauty could actually be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. I completely agree. And I'm really glad that you pointed that out. It's true that with the expertise that you have and the experiences that we've both shared in the industry, we can see both what's broken about the old model and the possibilities Mm -hmm. of the future. There are some people who are doing some incredible stuff. And I think that there's room for innovation in all industries to help make the changes that we need to see happen. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We are all ears. I think it's a really exciting space for a young, disruptive, progressive thinker to think about a career in these industries because everybody is definitely pulling a young voice to the leadership table and are very eager to hear what they have to say. So it's um, exciting. Amazing. So let's go to my closing questions. Are you Mm -hmm. ready? I don't think so. Great. So what is a favorite word that you could tattoo on yourself? I mean, I have a tattoo of a uh-huh. word, which is my son's name. And that, I mean, that sounds so sort of cliche again, but it's the only word that we changed his name in the adoption and it's his new name. And it sort of represents everything about our life as a family, as a rainbow family, as a forever family. And yeah, I definitely had to tattoo that on my arm because it was it was a daily reminder of just how brilliant life is and how lucky Aww. I am. What does connection mean to you? Connection means being seen, feeling heard, being given permission to be your authentic self feeling that you're, yeah, you're with like-minded souls that are aware of how precious life is and that we all have shared values. That's real connection to me. Now, this is a really hard one. (laughs) What song best represents you? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Oh, I love music so much. I don't know. I mean, I'm a massive fan of George Michael. It's so hilarious. Um, I love faith and just what it stands for because it's about having not necessarily, I mean, I do have a faith, but just in regards to have faith in, in, in life and it's all okay. You know, it's, it's that belief in something bigger is a really strong mantra for me. So yeah, I love faith. But then I there's so love many others. faith. Oh my God. Do you? I'm so glad you named that because I've put together a playlist of every song that's been selected by my guests as an answer to this. Uh, I'm and sure there's I'm, a lot more highbrow than faith, but no, 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 no. Cause see, it's about what song best represents you. It's not about judging and it's very eclectic, but we definitely okay. needed some George Michael on that. Yeah. Love George. Oh. What is the sweetest thing that's ever happened to you? Oh my gosh. I mean, probably. Am I allowed to say that? It's probably my husband and I getting married in Meditation Mountain in Ojai, just outside of Los Angeles, which was all of our family sat on blankets at the top of Meditation Mountain. And we were married by a wonderful spiritual healer. And yeah, it was just driving up through the orange grove and that probably in my life has been the sweetest, most beautiful love thing I can dial up. Mm, That's gorgeous. What is a secret superpower that you have? My dance card is quite often full in regards to invitations to dinners. So a lot of my friends say, we invite you because you put people at ease and you make them laugh. So I think think possibly that's maybe a sort of secret power or superpower, whatever you call it. I think definitely is to, you know, have fun and laugh. Like, really properly laugh and definitely hopefully making within the interview context and then and my work is making people feel at ease. Mm. What's a favorite book that you can share with us? 
book. So I, I'm really bad at doing a mass of reading and I don't know about anyone else listening, but I do find it increasingly harder to find the time. That's really lazy. So you do kind of go into audio books and there's so many. I mean, Michelle Obama's book was pretty mind blowing. There's a one that I really would love to share, and her name's Anglin Connor, and she is a lady in waiting. And it is so brilliant because the audiobook, she sort of narrates it and stuff, but she was lady in waiting to Princess Margaret. And it's just of another time. And she's so powerful about her storytelling and the sort of sense of family, but also she married the, the guy who bought Mystique. And they did all of those insane parties. And so it was this sort of marrying together of the kind of exotic of the sort of stones and then the royal circles and then the, just the excess. And she's also had such a journey and she's had quite a few children and there were the journeys. And so somebody in there sort of approaching 90 to talk about their life story, I definitely recommend doing the audio book on Lady in Waiting by Anne Connor. Oh, it sounds amazing. I'm yeah, convinced. Fun. You just sent me on a journey already. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Imagining that you can step into a future version of yourself. What do you think is the most important advice that your future self could give you, current self you? Keep going. I mean, I know, again, probably a lot of people say that. There are, with all honesty in life, you know, there are lots of times where from a mental health perspective, you know, we are fragile. We are fragile people. And there's a total permission to allow that in, that we don't have to be these sort of super duper kind of machines. Like actually, we are all incredibly fragile. And there are times that you do need to feel that somebody's got the small of your back and are telling you, keep going, you're doing really well. Just believe in self, have faith and carry on. And that little voice, whether it's yourself or whether it's your guardian angel or whether it's, you know, your kind of spiritual community around you, I think that voice and that encouragement would be what I'd like to hear from myself. Thank you. And my final question, what brings you happiness? My son, <laughs> again, real, I mean, it really is that it's, I know, and again, lots of people talk about their children, but it's his laughter. When he does that total kind of abandon of the head throwing back and that real, real laughter. There's really nothing else that I could feel more, more happy about. It's just a joyful thing. And thankfully, there's a lot of it in the house because he's a very glass half full optimistic joker. So they're very warm hearted, fun dinner table conversations with lots and lots of big doses of laughter. So that's my high. Sounds like a wonderful high. Thank you so much. I had I such it. pleasure chatting to you. And it does feel like I know you after our previous chat and with today. I know we've got friends in common. So perhaps there's, mm -hmm. there's a reason why I feel that sense of connection. So if people are interested to get in touch and find out more about you or the things that you mm -hmm. do with Bespoke Banter or the Feel Good Foundation, where can they find you? Mm, yeah, so definitely Bespoke Banter is a good destination to go to in regards to all of our contact details. So just bespokebanter.com and then feelgoodfellowship.com as well with all of the contact details there. And then always love to hear from people on Instagram. So it's just Scott Wimsett, two T's and just all the T's, Scott, TT, Wimsett, TT, like lots of T's. But yeah, I mean, definitely really appreciate any kind of shout out like that. So thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you so much for everything. I hope that we'll get a chance to connect perhaps in person in a few weeks when I yes, next please. visit London. And I am going to send you off to have a wonderful weekend as I know that you're going to be running back to your son and to Somerset. Uh, yes. Well, it's Apple Day this weekend in Somerset. So there's a whole kind of harvesting of all the apples and there's a big, big party happening on my friend's farm. So we're ah. going to be drinking cider and dancing with the children under the apple trees. So it'd just be glorious. Hoping for good fantastic. weather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, have a yeah. lovely weekend. Thank you, Anne. So, friends and listeners, thanks again for joining me today. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice. If you'd like to connect, you can get in touch with me at Anavi on Twitter Anne Mühletaler on LinkedIn or on Instagram at underscore 
Out of the Clouds, where I also share daily musings about mindfulness. You can also find all of the episodes of the podcast and much more on my website, anvmilitale.com. If you don't know how to spell it, it's also going to be in the show notes. If you would like to get regular news directly delivered to your inbox, I invite you to sign up to my monthly newsletter. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Out of the Clouds. I hope that you will join me again next time. And until then, be well, be safe, and take care.